news drives markets. And every day, Montel's experienced reporters are on top of the stories that shape European market developments. Can you afford to miss out? Go to montelnews.com for the latest price-driving stories and a free trial. Hello listeners and welcome to the Montel Weekly Podcast. Bring you energy matters in an informal setting. In today's pod, we delve into the current high price levels in energy markets across the globe, although our focus will be mostly on EU power and gas prices. What's behind the bull run? How long could it last? And what are the implications for companies and policymakers? Joining me, Richard Sverson, are my colleagues Ola Vilnes, editor Nordics, and Nathan Wittkop, correspondent Germany. A warm welcome to you, Olaf and Nathan. Hi, Richard. Thank you. I'd like to turn to you first, Olaf. We're both old enough to remember and we're working in at Montel in, during previous bull runs or commodity super cycles. Are we back to 2007, 2008 in your view? Yeah, that's a very good question. It seems a bit like that. I mean, we have been used to this in periods. You have everything looks very bullish. And at the moment, definitely, I mean, you've seen sharp rises across the the curve really on coal, on gas, on carbon and power. So, but of course, previous experience also shows that at one time it will kind of burst and you will start correcting back again. So I think there could quite easily be a, a, a sharp adjustment down as well this autumn, if, but no one knows when. In the Nordic region in particular, last year was, was a year of extremely low prices. I mean, record low prices. This year is completely the reverse. What's going on, Olaf? What are you hearing in the market? Yeah, it's, I think everyone is is quite of, uh, yeah, they're, they're very surprised by this sharp turnaround. I mean, when we spoke to people last autumn, they said it would be cheap for at least a couple of years. A lot of new renewables coming online, a lot of uh, hydro power in storage. Uh, so, so people re- did actually, were quite from a hydropower perspective, they were quite depressed. I mean, they thought, okay, prices will stay low now for a long time. And then we just go some months and then it's probably they're heading for the best year ever this year in the Nordic region, some of the high power producers. So it's, it's, it's quite remarkable. In terms of the profits that we, they've really seen some, some of the companies posting very good uh, half year financial results. Yeah, and I think particularly those that are very much focusing on hydropower, like Statkraft, for example. We, we saw Statkraft's uh, first six months result. They, it more than trebled the, from the flexible production unit in that period uh, compared to the year, previous year. Uh, some of the companies are probably a little bit more cautious, hedging higher volumes. You saw the likes of Vattenfall, Fortum, Uniper last year didn't see the same fall in profits when prices fell because they have a, a relatively high hedging degree. So, so I think particularly those that hedge a level, quite low hedging levels, focusing very much on hydropower, they, they are really the winners this year. Because if you're confronted with two prices at two euros a megawatt hour or to five and, and you, you hedge at 10 or 20, you'll be kicking yourself uh, this year. You probably will, but I think I think last year, it's, a, it's quite a funny story, that one. There's one of these utilities in Western Norway, it's called SKL. I think they, they have like a policy of not really hedging any production. And they produce uh, several terawatt hours a year. And last year, everyone was kind of criticizing them. Why are you not hedging? I mean, you are you get this kind of, uh, what are they doing? But this year, of course, <laughs> like you also have the benefit of that strategy of being open in the market. So, yeah. So they're the ones smiling now, you know. So Nathan, if I could turn to you on the continent, what's happening here in terms, you know, for German utilities or in the gas markets? 
Well, I think just to, to, to back up a bit and, and join in on what you were both discussing there, I mean, I think some of the surge we've seen in prices this year, it's, it's kind of linked to uh, separate but coincidental pressures on carbon, gas and coal, as well as uh, lower renewable energy generation, especially in, in Germany with, with disappointing wind levels as well as a, an international rebound from, from COVID. So there are exceptional circumstances behind this rally. I think a lot of people were anticipating a rally this year around the world, but the extent of the rally has really caught people by surprise. And the other thing I would say is that, you know, compared to 2008, I think there are some things that are a bit different now, the extent of the climate crisis being the most screamingly obvious one, and the pressure there to address that through a much tougher carbon trading scheme in, in Europe. Um, I mean, that's largely what's, what's driving the, the higher carbon prices. It's not the only thing, of course. But at the same time, yeah, I, I think with gas specifically, yes, we have some, I think, short-term pressures that are that are really pushing gas prices up now. And when you look at the shape of gas prices into the future, you can see that there is a sharp drop-off expected by next summer. And that sort of tells you that there is an expectation that a lot of the supply constraints that we've had this year should ease from next year. But having said that, we still have to get through this critical phase of, of winter. And that's really what everyone's concerned about is that we, we haven't been able to rebuild our stocks this year as hoped, say, in March. And pipeline flows have been disappointing. LNG has fled to Asia and, and Latin America, but, but Asia in particular, which experienced a huge spike in prices last winter in, in January, and there would be those wary there of, of repeating that situation. So, we've got this short-term, very tight situation in the, in the gas market, fear of what's going to come in winter, that working together with, with a very high carbon price to effectively push up a lot more coal generation, especially in, in countries like Germany, and uh, that then leading to a rebound in demand for coal, even as coal suppliers uh, around the world had just cut back last year because of the, the blow of the coronavirus. And the thing with the coal rebound is um, I think a lot of people that I've spoken to this year have, have been saying from the start of the year, well, you know, last year we had some two-thirds of uh, seaborne coal suppliers uh, loss-making basically at the prices that the market crashed to around $50 a ton, you could say globally. Now they've shot up to, uh, I think, uh, you know, if we take the Newcastle price as a reference, they're like above $170 a ton. They've pretty much tripled off that low base, yet supply hasn't come back nearly as much. And I think that's consistently surprised people, coal analysts I've spoken to throughout the year. And the reason many keep coming back to is, well, ultimately climate. The concern, the divestment movement has been actually quite effective at driving especially financial houses, uh, banks away from financing new coal projects that's pushed up effectively the cost for, for miners when they look for partners to help them expand supply. And that's also, you know, reflected back the, the risk that are these mines really going to be profitable in the long run? Are they going to be able to pay themselves off if we really do 
address climate change if we do really try to meet the the Paris commitment of, of limit, limiting climate change to a 1.5 to just 2C rise this century. And that means, yeah, coal plants just, they're reluctant to uh, reopen supply that was closed. And so, yeah, we have these uh, sudden rebound in demand. Effectively, it's it's like a, a carbon tax on, on the rest of the world that doesn't necessarily price carbon. So while carbon prices are very high, you, you're still seeing this year uh, an increase in coal-fired generation, right? So actually emissions in some countries uh, are likely to see an increase in 2021. Yeah, very much. So it's, it's important to point out two things. We see a surge in coal-fired generation in Germany, for example. Uh, I think coal-fired generation, if you include hard coal and lignite together, is up 38% in the first half. Germany's coal importers expect to see a 12% rise this year. But you have to bear this in mind. It's off a low base. Last year, we had a huge shock with the coronavirus. And so even these levels will not take us back to where we were in the first half of 2019. And you also have to remember that in Germany, we've got um, a coal phase-out schedule. It was heavily criticized last year for being overly expensive and people pointed at, oh, look at the carbon prices. It's, it's Look at the cheap gas. It's going to be made redundant anyway. What a waste. But actually, this year, it's looking like a very good insurance policy because we have coal rebounding despite very high record carbon prices around 60 a ton. I mean, recall that, you know, only a few years ago, they were in the single digits. And it was hoped that at 30 a ton, that would be enough to drive out vast amounts of coal. I mean, we've got double that now. And in fact, lignite generation, the most emissions intensive source of of coal has shot up even more than, than hard coal because it is still competitive and it's it will remain competitive as long as hard coal and gas prices are very high. Effectively, as long as those are high, they set high power prices and the margin that's left over for lignite generation after carbon costs is enough to keep it alive and, and actually do quite well and keep it ahead of, of these other sources of generation in the on the, the price curve for determining who who gets to go first. So I think, in a sense, it's a good insurance policy that Germany's coal phase-out schedule that, that compensates utilities for coal closing plants. And uh, I mean, the country is going to close how much? I think around 36% of its hard coal-fired power plants between last year, this year, and next year, taking it down to about 15 gigawatts. So that's a significant drop. And so we will see coal emissions, coal-fired emissions come down in the coming years, despite all of these factors we've just been talking about and the rebound in coal-fired generation, despite its rebound in its competitiveness. And the other thing I think that's really interesting what it does is, is at the moment, I mean, we don't know how long this high-price environment is going to last. It's, trying to make a prediction there is a bit like trying to say how long is a piece of string. But as long as we have these really high prices – then renewable energy is looking super cheap to build, right? Mm, that I is, mean, that's the key, isn't it? It's, yeah. yeah, this is this has got to be a clear signal that if now's not the time to to radically cut emissions through far more ambitious rollouts of of clean power, then I'm sorry, when is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just this is a bit of an off the wall question, but. Do you think there would be any increased calls to restart nuclear power or nuclear plants in Germany? No, I don't think so. I think the nature of German politics, you have to kind of 
understand. I mean, we could get into a podcast just on this now. But I mean, I was having this conversation with with someone else the other day. And look, I think for a start, you have to appreciate that Germany's political system is built very much around consensus. uh, And that's for very specific historical reasons that we should all be aware of. I mean, there was a, a clear aim after the Second World War to build a system that could not allow another dictator to come to power the way that Hitler did. So, the system is it's very hard for one party to have a, a winner-takes-all success following, following elections. In fact, it's, it is pretty much impossible. You, unlike, um, say, English-speaking countries, you really do need to form coalitions across political divides. So, so just as a start, I think it's, it's important to point out that it's very consensus-oriented that Germany's next government will be a coalition of some sort. I think that we can talk about the elections in a moment. I think they've become a lot more interesting than where things stood six months ago. And because, because there was a consensus on leaving nuclear, I think that consensus will be upheld. I think it becomes – it's just not very German to, at the last moment, tear everything open again. So I, I, I don't see that happening. And I think the, the, the bigger pressure will simply be to, in the first place, step up the country's rollout of renewable energy far more swiftly to overcome the bottlenecks that are holding it back. And in the second place, to bring forward the closure of coal-fired power plants to bring it more in line, the timetable to, say, 2030, that reflects the Paris Climate Agreement ambitions and also the, the implications of the EU's goal to cut emissions by 55% by 2030. I mean, it would be very hard to deliver these goals while sticking to Germany's present timetable for closing coal. Olaf, if I can turn to you here, you know, there's there's been a similar debate in Sweden, hasn't there, about potentially turning back uh, or going back to nuclear power. What's the current status here now amongst these very high prices? There is a debate, and I think it's quite interesting to see when the next, um, I mean, the the minority government in Sweden have been under pressure from the opposition to do something about the electricity situation. And and of course, if you look at the prices this summer, the calls haven't really become less vocal over it. I mean, there's still parties that want nuclear. They want probably to restart the last nuclear plant that was shut down at the end of last year. And there are also calls for maybe the government to open up for uh, for new build in the future uh, using new technology, whether it will be a more small-scale modular reactors or, or, or a large one. But I don't think the sector is that interested in, in investing. I mean, if you listen to Vattenfall and other uh, companies, there's not really any plans to build any nuclear now in, in Sweden. So I think it's more, and they're also quite determined, they were quite determined to just continue on with the plans to phase out uh, the decision they had made in the past. So I think now the existing reactors, they will run until like 2040s, uh, and they will surely run until the 2040s. I don't see any reason why they shouldn't, but but uh, I don't think you will see any restart. Uh, but but maybe there is there is an interesting debate going on there. So there, there could be a call, and I think also the public opinion, both in Sweden and uh, and also in Finland, have turned more pro nuclear in recent years, uh, linked to the climate change and a uh, link to the problems that some people see with the system stability and and things like that. The volatility that a market full of wind and solar incre- uh, that increases the vol- price volatility. And uh, you've seen some periods now very, very high support prices there that, of course, calls some some criticism from uh, from end users. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll return to industry in a minute. But I think 
we talked about very high gas, carbon, coal prices. You know, with gas prices, 40, 45 euros a megawatt hour on the TTF, that's in the summer. As Nathan mentioned, you know, the fear of what's going to happen this winter if the supply constraints uh, stay in place. But in the Nordic region, we've seen you know, extremely high spot prices in recent weeks, you know, from, from 70, 80 to 100 euros, over 100 euros per megawatt hour. What are people saying about the winter? This is the price level in August. What, what can we expect from November to January? Yeah, we could say it's extremely high, but it's, it's quite low compared to the German levels because, I mean, if you look at the German levels, it's been around 100 euros, which mm. reflects, of course, the short-term marginal cost of coal and gas-fired plants. Mm. Uh, the Nordic region have been held down by a, coming into the year with a hydropower surplus, but what you've seen in recent weeks and months is that producers are starting to sort of hold back on hydropower, managing to lift prices towards German levels. And of course, uh, what analysts have told me is that if this relatively dry weather continues now into the rest of August, into September, then you will see that the Nordic region will have to stop exporting as much power as they have done earlier in the summer. And to do that, well, they, and they need to lift prices up towards German levels. And then you have to look at what is the what's the future price that in Germany, and then you have like a hundred euros, but for Q4 and for Q1 next year, so probably Nordic prices will rise from uh, currently they are like uh, about sixty euros now for uh, for both Q4 and Q1, and then maybe some somewhere in between, somewhere in between current levels and the German level. I think that's the consensus among the analysts I've spoken to. Yeah, some price zones have already seen over a hundred euros in the Nordic region, have like uh, like Sweden in uh, this week. Um, yeah, and we have, of course, that's a big, that's a very important point. Of course, you have the fifteen bidding zones in the Nordic region, which of course makes it uh, some of the regions that have uh, a, a more tight supply demand balance uh, and also have borders with Germany. They have seen higher prices, like Denmark and like southern Sweden, and I think also southern Norway will have higher prices. We, we just have to remember the UK cable that comes online now in, um, in later this autumn will, of course, draw fourteen hundred megawatt of exports into a market that is even higher priced than the German one. So, so I think the the outlook is extremely bullish at the moment for the Nordic region. Definitely. And you have the other nuclear yeah. card, uh, Olkiluoto, our old friend Olkiluoto three. Is, is delayed coming back as well. And that's another additional bullish factor, right? It is, because I think they expected the trials to start earlier this autumn. Now it was postponed until November. And I think the commercial launches will be late April next year. And and uh, everyone who have followed the Olkiloto saga and uh, have uh, been uh, are old enough to remember when they started. Then of course they they know that the, the, there could be more delays coming. But uh, but I think I think now at least it is it is finished now. It's just about testing and so on. So so probably this this plant will come and it will dampen prices when it comes online. But uh, probably not this winter and probably not in the early winter. And that of course that's when prices can peak. So, so that's uh, that's probably also a concern for 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 the short term curve. You mentioned end users, Olaf. You've spoken to industry, uh, both in the Nordic region and and outside the Nordic region. What are they currently saying? I mean, how how sustainable are these high prices for for the region's heavy industry or power intensive sectors? Yeah, I spoke to some of them, and I I, I know that just a year ago, I, I remember uh, a representative of Alcoa, a large aluminium producer, was 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 uh, taking part in the Nordic Energy Day and was very happy about the market because prices were very low. It was a competitive market, and and they still like the market, but in a way, you now with the current prices, they just told me that uh, if prices stay at sixty euros, then they will sort of. Uh, that will remove their competitive advantage of being located in Norway because that's low prices, low power prices. It's always been a competitive advantage across the Nordic region to have low power prices. And now, of course, if prices rise to these kind of levels, then it will not no longer be that. 
And that's, of course, a concern for them. They are, of course, shielded. Most of them have uh, they have hedged themselves through poor purchase agreements and other deals. So they won't be they won't suffer very much today. But of course, if it continues for a longer period, then it will be problematic for them. The EU has this great policy of or the idea of um, the, the measure, the carbon border adjustment mechanism, the CBAM or the carbon border tax, which it plans to implement by 2025 or 2026. And it would be a shame if there was no industry left um, to, to shield from high from the carbon prices because of the, the, the electricity prices, right? Definitely. And, uh, and that's also what the European uh, Association of, uh, of Large uh, Industrial Energy Users, uh, IFEX, said earlier this week was that, of course, there is this, uh, I mean, it's a carbon market, the carbon border adjustment mechanism is also a bit uh, divisive among industries because it's, uh, it's probably not very good for export-oriented industries because what they then risk is retaliation. So they want, it can close their markets in a way. Uh, it's probably better for those that are focused on imports. So they want to just keep the, the current mechanisms as well, just a scheme that compensates them for higher energy costs. They want that... Uh, um, gives free al- free allocation to some sectors that are uh, subject to, to to international competition. Some some also want to sort of reform the ETS and and stop the uh, the stability reserve, which has of course been a, a, a main contributor to the rise we've seen in carbon prices over the last few years. And I think the main reason, of course, is that <laughs> what can politicians do here? I mean, they they can't really do anything with the with the with the gas prices or the the coal prices, but they can do something with the rules on the on the emissions market, which is a political market. So there will probably be some more pressure now from lobby groups that are concerned about high prices against the carbon market. But that's always been a debate in Europe. What What's the tolerance level for a high carbon price? Now it's 58. Is that the limit? Should it be even higher? I mean, that's, that's of course, uh, will be interesting to follow. These are very important questions. Nathan, I mean, always when you get these periods of very high prices, there is a risk of political intervention, as as, as Olaf just mentioned, with maybe pressure on reforming the ETS or putting in places ways to alleviate uh, the effect for industry. There's also the issue of full poverty, which is a real issue. We've talked about industry and we've heard some noises coming from some countries in Europe about putting in place or maybe making some changes to the market structure, introducing a cap on prices. What are you hearing? Or what, do you think there's a realistic uh, risk of political intervention in, in the wholesale energy markets? Yeah, I think intervention in some way or another is inevitable. And it's almost like you can't really have it both ways. You can't really say, oh, we need more markets and then expect fair or, or non-disruptive outcomes if you rely purely on price signals. I mean, if we look at how constrained we have to make carbon to meet our climate objectives, and if we were just to translate that purely into prices, then we would bring about the shocks that that everyone is so concerned about. And I think the well, the EU is very attuned to not wanting to let these shocks either produce yellow vest movements or, or a reaction from people hurt and disrupted by this, especially people who are already poor and and worst placed when it comes to heating their homes or or, driving somewhere to work. But also, it's industry, it's it's signaled very loudly that that it's aware of these these concerns, but it's, it's also between a rock and a hard place. And I think what that ultimately it means is the more we intervene, the more we make the EU ETS less relevant as a mechanism, which I don't necessarily think 
is a bad thing. <laughs> I would be stoned by by half the people who listen to the the podcast, perhaps, for saying such types of things. Slightly controversial, yep. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's in a sense it's inevitable that we'll bring about more intervention because if we if we do let prices spike to the levels that they would need be needed to spike to to prompt um, the changes that we need then we would bring about a countermeasure either from industry or either from the streets. Uh, There's a response to that. And so, the other side of it is that the more we delay, the more we wait for for the carbon price to reach the levels that are needed to bring about change in certain industries, whether it's to uh, incentivize hydrogen production or something like this, the less time we have realistically to be able to bring about these these technologies. And the, the fact is we need to be getting on with the investments now. Business says it wants planning security. And if you want to give planning security, then you have to, in a sense, reach past the carbon market and start to come up with all kinds of other tools that, that end up watering it down in terms of things like the proposed carbon contracts for difference. As far as, as I understand, if, uh, say, a, a steel producer considering an investment in hydrogen says, well, look, we would need a carbon price of 130 euros a ton to justify that, but, you know, carbon prices on the carbon market are 60 euros a ton. So, there's, you know, there's a difference of 70 euros that needs to be covered there before we would entertain doing that. Well, you could set about issuing auctions to industrial groups to say, hey, look, um, who's got the the, the cheapest plans for bringing about these kinds of investments that will, will bring down emissions? This hydrogen producer or this steel maker says 130 a ton. Um, we'll give them the difference, 70 euros, if the carbon market stays below that. But you know, if the carbon market rises above, then they've got to pay us the difference back. So these kinds of clever mechanisms provide business and, and, and government with planning security and uh, share the the risk, share the the, the expense. But of course, it's not conducive to having a, a liquid carbon market, let's say, because then more and more people will only want to shore up their carbon risks this way. And you don't really have the, the market itself. You, you don't need to have all of these companies entering into, into the carbon market to, to, to hedge their future needs. So, I mean, in the long and short of it, I think basically I think there are no non-radical futures. We either take make massive changes to get us onto a path that aligns with the emissions reductions we're aiming for or we keep on carrying on as we currently are and massive changes are coming our way one way or another. Absolutely. And I think we've got quite a roller coaster ride ahead for the coming weeks and months. So um All of it, Nathan. Thank you very much for a fascinating discussion. And I think, you know, we'll keep on watching these markets and these price levels and we'll we'll come back at, uh, at a later date and discuss it in more depth. So thank you very much, guys. No worries. Thanks. So listeners, you can now follow the podcast on our own Twitter account, aptly named the Montel Weekly Podcast. Please direct message any suggestions, questions, or, you know, let us know if you if you think you have a good idea for a guest on the show. You can also send us an email to podcast at montelnews.com. Lastly, remember to keep up to date with all that's happening in energy markets on Montel News. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you and goodbye.